0: Even as we gather this morning, Lord, we know that there are many in our midst today um, that things aren't good in their life for whatever reason. Hurting, loss of loved ones, loss of jobs, sickness, Lord. But God, in you we can say it is well with our soul because we're safe and secure by the (coughs) blood of the Lamb and nothing can take it away. Lord, I pray that even now you would prepare our hearts and our minds and help us to hear, Lord, open our ears, open our eyes, open our mind to understand the word that you have for us today. God, we pray that your spirit would go forth, that you would change lives, Lord, that you would save the lost, most importantly, Amen. that you would lift up the downcast, that you would comfort the mourning, that you would heal the sick. God, that you would bless the lowly. Lord, we love you today and we praise you for all that you've done, are doing, and will do. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Good morning and welcome again. My name is Craig Thompson and I'm the senior pastor here. And it is our privilege to have you with us here at Malvern Hill Baptist Church. We try our best to love uh, love the Lord, love each other, and, and to change the world around us. And if you're a guest with us this morning, we would love for you to be a part of that in any way that the Lord would allow. I do want to thank our musicians. Uh, many of you are aware, which, hey, by the way, let me just say this is a great spring break crowd. I was fully expecting to come in and see a uh, really just basement number here, so I'm, I'm proud of you for showing up. Um, but uh, uh, Kevin is not with us. Pastor Kevin's not with us. His uh, wife, Deanna, her stepdad passed away last week, and funeral services for him. Or yesterday in Mississippi, so um, they are not with us. That's the reason that our um, our cantata was moved from today until the Sunday after Easter. So uh, please pray for them as they travel. But uh, just so grateful that we have such good leadership um, across our board, across the board here in our church, that allows for our music ministry to continue to move forward and for us to be led in worship without really missing much of a beat. So uh, I just thank you all for that. And uh, just in, for those of you that might have been wondering, that is where Pastor Kevin is at this morning. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in the book of Mark, chapter 11. If you want to go ahead and turn there, let me give you just a couple of announcements as you're turning. This week, the schedule is, is a little crazy. Um, there is no evening worship tonight. We do have regular Wednesday night worship. And then on Friday, we have our Good Friday service. So I hope that you'll plan to be here for, with, with us for that. At 6 o'clock, we will observe the Lord's Supper as a part of our Good Friday service. Also, next Sunday, for those of you who are not long-timers here at Malvern Hill, this is what Easter looks like. We have a sunrise service at 7.30. That's right, we pushed it back to give you a little bit of time to sleep. Uh, 7.30, we meet right out here on the front lawn, uh, and it is, it's a wonderful time. We'll have chairs out, but if you'd like to bring your own, there usually um, is a need for that. We'll put out uh, chairs. And uh, we will have um, a sunrise service followed by a breakfast here in the back. And after breakfast, we will have life group. And then after life group, we will have worship all over again. So uh, it's a neat time for us on on Easter morning as we gather. Many of our folks do come at at seven thirty and stay right on through until worship. And if you would like to, we would welcome you to do that as we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Next Sunday morning, we'll also observe baptism. If you need to be baptized and you have not contacted the church office yet, please do so this week so that we can make plans accordingly. But we will have baptism next Sunday morning at the, at the beginning of our worship service. All right, those are the announcements. Now, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to stand with me in honor of God's Word. We're going to read a long passage of Scripture, two Sundays in a row, that we're going to be doing a long passage of Scripture And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many others spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Let us pray. Father God, I pray that you would astonish us at the teaching of Jesus this morning. Father God, may we be amazed at this one whom we serve. Work in us, in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Is my microphone working okay? Everything good? Everybody got me? Sounds a little off to me. It must just be the stopping up of my ears. If you are a careful student of our sermon series, you will notice that we've skipped um, some some passages there in Mark chapter 10. We will come back and pick those up in a couple of weeks. Also, you will notice as a part of my sermon this morning that we're just going to kind of ignore Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14... That uh, passage about Jesus cursing the fig tree, we're not going to address that until we come back to Jesus' explanation of that passage again in a few weeks down there in Mark chapter 11, verse 20 and following. So if you're working through there and wondering what's going on, just know, I didn't forget it, we're going to come back. Um, uh, my, my preaching calendar got a little bit off as a result of me missing that one Sunday. And I wanted to make sure that this morning as we celebrate and honor Palm Sunday, that we actually deal with texts that deal with Palm Sunday. So um, this morning, that's kind of where we are. When Jesus rode into town, I want you to know he left no doubt about his purpose. His arrival at the head of a ragtag band of followers riding a donkey was an allusion to his purpose, an allusion, not an illusion. This was not faking someone out. Jesus was leaving, no doubt. When he cleansed the temple, that was an exclamation point, the king had come to assume his throne. Jesus arrived in Jerusalem at a time of great expectation. We celebrate Palm Sunday, and if we're not careful, we can miss a lot of what's going on. N.T. Wright said that Jesus' arrival was sort of a perfect storm. Um, and he compares it to the, the book and movie of the same name, A Perfect Storm, that talks about how multiple storms converged in one place to sink a ship once upon a time. And, and here in first century Jerusalem, we, we have a perfect storm made up of at least three, three major components. The first was the Roman storm. The Roman government that sought to impose its control over Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is a small, sort of -of out-of-the-way place, we would think. And yet, it has been a contested place for all of human history. It's been a contested place, at least in part, because it's sort of a crossroads. Everything sort of goes through Jerusalem. It might not be next to anything, but everything goes sort of through there and around there. So there was the Roman imperial position, desire, to control Jerusalem. Then right there in Jerusalem, there was also sort of the nationalistic hopes among the people. The people longed for a Redeemer. Now, we don't fully appreciate this, okay? We are people that live in comfort, in freedom. We live in such freedom that we don't even really and truly go to bed with a thought that that possibly our freedoms could ever be taken away. And yet here these people are living under the thumb of Roman oppression. And they are a freedom-loving people. They were the people whose entire history was built and wrapped up and told over and over and over again about the Exodus. Their whole history historical picture, their life story, their grandparents' life story, their great-grandparents' life story, their great-great-great-grandparents' life story, their story was all tied up in an understanding that they had been carried off into captivity once before, they had been ruled by an evil taskmaster once before, but the, the God of Israel had redeemed them with his strong right hand. For them, the idea that Rome could overcome their God was just not something to take very seriously because Pharaoh had been put to open shame. God had rescued his people. He didn't just send them out of Egypt, you'll remember. They plundered Egypt on the way out. And then God led them with a pillar of fire at night and a pillar of cloud by day. He did incredible things like parting the Red Sea and giving them manna from heaven so that they might eat. So these nationalistic desires for the Roman government's oppression to be thrown off, it was really reaching a fevered pitch. (coughs) And during this time, there were actually several others who rose up claiming to be the deliverer, the Messiah. And So we have the Roman storm, we have the Jewish storm, and then lo and behold, we have the Jesus storm, and they all converge in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. Rome is desiring to control Jerusalem's desires. Israel's desires are at a peak during this time of Passover when they're not just remembering that they came from somewhere, but they are celebrating the time that God delivered them. And there into Jerusalem rides Jesus. Now again, without a good biblical picture, we might see Jesus' arrival into Jerusalem as sort of no big deal. But Jesus was on purpose in everything that he did. We read in the book of Luke that Jesus set his face at one point in time to get to Jerusalem. Jesus showed up with a lot of things in mind. Jesus showed up to declare his kingdom, his rightful authority, his kingship. Jesus rode into Jerusalem to plant his flag and say, I am in charge. Folks, I'm curious this morning, have you surrendered to the King? See, when we talk about Jesus as Lord, a lot of times we sort of sentimentalize this idea of Lord. We religiousize. Can I say that? Can I make up a word this morning? We religiousize this name of Lord. So we say Jesus is Lord, and well, that just means He's God, or he's, He's sort of what I worship. But understand that the declaration that Christ is the Lord was in the first century and continues to be today a declaration that he is the king. Total authority. We've got to wrap our brains around an understanding of what it is to live in a kingdom, and under a monarchy, not under a democracy, not under a republic. In a monarchy, the king makes all the rules. He is in total control. And Jesus wrote into Jerusalem, To declare his kingdom. So, my question to you this morning have you surrendered to the king? Let's look at three things this morning from this passage of scripture that I hope will help us and then ultimately bring us back to the question Have you surrendered? The first thing we see this morning is that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. The Bible says, when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said, go into the village. There you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it. Well, that's sort of an odd thing. Jesus doesn't request a a, a horse. He doesn't request a carriage. Probably 15 years ago, I preached a sermon um, titled Unexpected Expectations. For those of you that were on the search committee that brought me here, that was probably the first sermon of mine that you ever heard. Because long ago, that was the sermon that I sent out with my resume on a little compact disc. Y'all remember those things? And um, it was so cute. I marketed it so well. I I had it small so it would fit into the envelope when I mailed it out. Anyway, y'all don't care. Um, But I preached on Palm Sunday at at the, the First Baptist Church in Duncan, South Carolina. And I talked about how Jesus rode into Jerusalem not on a white horse mounted to declare his authority over Rome. You see, there were some who were looking for a military leader and there was an unexpected expectation because when Jesus rode in, he rode in on a donkey. But understand it was only those with worldly expectations that missed exactly what was going on worldly expectations of Jesus want to see him mounted on a white horse with a sword but biblical expectations of Jesus understand full well that Jesus must need ride into Jerusalem on A donkey. All the way back in Genesis chapter forty-nine, verse eleven, Jacob blessed his sons and he prophesied, "The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples." There was an expectation that the Messiah would come, the rescue of Israel from Judah, as had been prophesied all the way back in Genesis chapter forty-nine. The fact that Jesus was from the line of Judah is just one prophetic reality in this story, this account. It's an incredible opportunity. The second one we'll look at this morning came or comes from Zechariah chapter nine verse nine. <clears throat> In Zechariah 9, nine we read, "Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. If we continue to read, on a colt, the foal of." A donkey. Folks, it's not only a specific prophecy. It is a declaration. Jesus understood full well what Zechariah meant. The religious leaders of Jesus' time understood full well. The people with a mind to see God's word understood full well that when Jesus came riding in on a donkey, he was making a very specific claim. I am the one that Zechariah prophesied about. But folks, it's not just the the explicit claims and prophecies we see in the Scripture. There's some other allusions. There's some other hints and shadows that point to this. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that animals that were set aside for a sacred purpose, those that would be sacrificed or those that would do particular things, those animals were to be animals that were pure and without blemish or spot, but they were also to be animals that had never been worked, They had never been yoked and they had never been ridden. They needed to be pure so that their their sacred use would be set apart. Jesus said to the disciples, you go and untie this donkey. That's all he had to say. Do you understand? That's all he had to say. But Jesus, who prior to this had really spoken in riddles and spoken in lots of, of imagery, We see that Jesus had been, for the last few chapters in Mark, sort of pulling the curtain back. But right here, he wants them to understand that the colt that they are going to find is one that has not been ridden before. Jesus says, you're going to get that donkey, and it has a sacred purpose. It will bear the king. Folks, I want you to know that the disciples who had been so thick-headed up to this point... Could have had little doubt about what it was that they were doing. When they went and they untied that donkey and they come out and said, what in the world is going on? Somebody walks out the door and says, what are you doing trying to get my donkey? I It seems kind of humorous to us, but that's because something like a donkey doesn't have a great purpose for us. We don't need them. But here they come and they open the door. What are you doing? Why are you untying my donkey? And the disciples said, the king, the Lord has need again folks we read the lord and we go what's the big deal the lord jesus is the lord what was caesar's title he was lord caesar the king has need of this that's what jesus told them to say go back and look if you don't believe me right 11 if anyone says why are you doing this say the lord has need of this i wonder if maybe they would have said you mean caesar do do you mean herod And they said, no, 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 no. We mean the Lord. Capital T, capital L. Jesus needs this donkey. The owner said, Oh yeah, we knew this was coming. Go. Now, folks, we don't have to necessarily assume sort of miraculous thing right here. Jesus might have sent word ahead that he was coming to get the donkey. We don't, it doesn't matter. What we know is that at this point Jesus leaves no doubt. There's no room for error. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, not as a victim of circumstance. Y'all, it's so important that we understand that. Jesus is not the victim of circumstance. He is the king that the Jews had waited upon. He understands that full well, and he declares it on his own. You will perhaps watch some some, um, uh, history channel or, or the learning channel. They'll have lots of documentaries about Jesus in the next week or so. Um, <laughs> and, and some of those will you not all, but some will often sort of suggest that Jesus was sort of a victim of his circumstance. Folks, if Jesus was a mere victim of his circumstance, he wouldn't have ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey and allowed the people to spread the palm branches and to lay their coats before him. Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Jesus understood himself to be the fulfillment of prophecy. And Jesus declared to all who had eyes to see and ears to hear that he was the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament had prophesied up to this point. He was the promised Redeemer. He was the Savior. He was the Messiah. He was the King. And on Palm Sunday, we get the first glimpse into that bold declaration Jesus did not give in to the whim of a crowd. Jesus created the fervor on Palm Sunday, and he did so on purpose. Second, this morning, Jesus makes the rules. So, Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy. Number one. Number two, Jesus makes the rules. Now, up to this point, throughout his ministry, Jesus had kind of avoided the spotlight. Palm Sunday represents a dramatic shift because here he's not avoiding the spotlight here jesus is owning the spotlight he's embracing the spotlight he created the fervor and he said look at me i have arrived when he sent his disciples after the cult as i mentioned he knew what he was going to do and as the galilean pilgrims were processing into jerusalem for the Passover, now let's step back hey let's let's be careful we, we and, 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 and for the record, once upon a time, I may have even preached this. I, I can't recall, but I'm, I'm going to apologize. If you've got notes in your Bible, just go back and erase them. Um, God's words inspired, Craig's words not. Um, I can mess up. Um, but we, we, we sometimes fall into this fallacy on Palm Sunday. We go, well, the, the crowd was so fickle, you know, and that. That on Sunday, they were all cheering, Hosanna, Hosanna. And then on Friday, crucify, crucify. Folks, those are two crowds. All right? The Galilean crowd, the, the, the pietistic crowd, these crowd of peasants that were following Jesus, these people were already worshiping Jesus, they're coming in and they're processing it. As they come in, they're shouting, the king has arrived! The king has arrived! They're laying their, their coats before Him. They're waving palm branches. Hosanna! Hosanna! Folks, understand that by the time we get to Friday, it's those people in power, in authority, the people we're going to talk about in just a minute, who have created a different crowd. They've, they're upset, and they need to get rid of this Jesus. Let's be careful that we don't see these crowds as this super fickle group. Folks, Jesus continued to have His followers all the way up until he hung on his cross on Friday afternoon. okay. But the Galilean pilgrims, they come in and they're, they're shouting Hosanna. They march into Jerusalem and Jesus suddenly jumps up on this donkey. Now y'all, we, y- y- some of y'all are just grinning at me. Y'all, y'all have got to understand, this is one of those gasp kind of moments. The people up to this point, many of them had assumed or or hoped or or, or began to think possibly he could be the one. But but up to this point, Jesus hasn't declared it. You understand? Remember the people that said it. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, yeah, yeah, the the Spirit revealed that to you, but uh, let's just keep that down for right now. The demons would come out and they would cry out, I see you and I know who you are. Heard somebody say just this weekend, and amazing that sometimes we can miss who Jesus is, but the demons always know. Jesus said, you hush! You don't tell it! But something changes. As they're walking in, Jesus is the most popular person in the crowd. The whole place knows him. Without doubt, some people in Jerusalem are awaiting his arrival. This is it. We're going to finally get to put eyeballs on this Galilean miracle worker. And as they come in, Jesus, the Pharisees are around. We know that because we're going to see some of their account in just a minute. Jesus walking along. All of a sudden, Peter and James, John, whoever, they show up. They're dragging this donkey along. And it's still a donkey, y'all. It's probably not like this this ordained donkey that's sanctified. And he's just walking happy and with a little glow around him. they're probably jerking this. Come on, you donkey. Come on. Jesus, we got this. What do you want? Jesus, y'all chill out. Well, they pushing their way through the crowd. They walk on up because Jesus is surrounded by people. He always is, right? And the people go, what are they doing with that donkey? Y'all move out of the way. Move out of the way. They drag this thing up. <coughs> the disciples take their coats off. They throw it up on the donkey. The next thing you know, somebody helps Jesus up. He throws over. he's sitting atop that donkey. And all the people go, oh. There's a gasp that runs through the crowd. Up to this point, many of them had hoped that maybe he could be. And all of a sudden they go, Yes. He is. Folks, at this point, Jesus is absolutely in control. He has just made a declaration. I am the one that you've hoped, that you've waited, that you've dreamed about. The people began to wave palm branches and laying their coats out. Now if we look back in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, at the coronation of Jehu. When Jehu was coronated king, the Bible recounts that this exact same thing happened. We go back and we look at the Maccabees. There's this idea that in those historic texts that those, when great things happened, the people celebrated by waving their coats and their palm branches. The king was coronated with the laying out of coats and palm branches when the people began to cut the branches off and rip their coats off and lay them down. They were coronating Jesus as the king as he walked into the holy city. And Jesus doesn't stop them. Now, as I mentioned, there were great expectations that someone would come and throw off the chains of Roman oppression, but not everybody thought this was a good idea. You see, for the people that lived in Jerusalem, Rome wasn't such a bad deal. There were some who had found a way to buddy up with Rome. We can look at King Herod's court. Now, he was sort of a puppet king, and he got rich off of the people, but he kept the peace. And as long as everybody was was calm and quiet, they left him alone. The priests, the chief priests, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, listen, they got to still be involved in the religious work of the, of the world. And as long as everything stayed cool, calm, and collected, they continue to get paid. They continue to live a pretty easy life. I had somebody look at me one time and say, the only reason you're a pastor, the only reason you believe in the church is because the church pays your bills. Well, that was hurtful. Okay? That was hurtful. But I'm going to tell you something. What we had going on right here in this place was a group of people who had bent and, and wavered. They'd given everything up so that they could get paid. Some of the Jewish leadership got fat on Roman rule. And as Jesus rode into town, many of the faithful laid down their palm branches and their cloaks. And they shouted, Hosanna. But others stood by and sneered. According to Luke, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, Rebuke your disciples. Do you hear what they're saying? Tell them to hush. But Jesus was in charge. Isn't that something? Jesus was in charge. He rode right into Jerusalem. And then he went, just don't, don't believe me, look. Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and he went where? Into the temple. The first place Jesus goes when he gets into, t- into Jerusalem is into his father's house. Jesus goes home. The Bible says he looks around, but it was late, so he left. Now... Sunday, he arrives and sets the world on edge. Sunday, he makes it pretty clear that he is the king that has come into his holy city. But folks, on Monday, Jesus leaves absolutely no doubt. You see, it's this position, this this moment in the temple, that is the closest thing that we have to Jesus as a revolutionary. In Jerusalem, from the time that the temple was established, I want you to understand that it wasn't the priests or even the prophets... Who were in charge of the temple? Now, Israel was not a democra- d- democracy. It's, Israel was not a democracy. Israel was not a republic. It was established as a theocracy, with the the the, the priests and the prophets sort of having a ruling authority as they spoke God's word to the people. The people threw off that. They didn't want that. We want a king. Don't make us a theocracy. Make us a monarch. You make us a kingdom. And so, from the time of Saul forward. The nation of Israel, as long as it was an independent place, was a monarchy. Now, under a monarchy, there is no separation of church and state. The king sets the tone for the political, economic, and even the religious life of the kingdom. In Israel and in Jerusalem, the king was in charge of the temple. Do you hear me? You need to pay attention to this. The king was in charge of the temple. If you don't believe it, let's just go back to the the building of the temple. When Solomon built the temple... The Bible says that David had already set out everything and explained how it was going to be. It was David and Solomon who created and set aside the division of the priests and and the Levites. They gave them all their jobs to do. Throughout the history of Israel and and, and of of Judah, we see these kings that were either good kings or bad kings. And and the good kings were those kings who led the nation to worship the Lord. The bad kings were those kings who led the nations to worship their idols. When we read about, for instance, the good king, the boy king Josiah. When Josiah comes into authority, the the Bible teaches that the book of the law was was found, it was recovered, and it was Josiah who said, we are going to serve the Lord. And it was Josiah who demanded that the temple be cleansed of all the pagan realities. It was Josiah who repaired the temple. And the glory of the Lord was, was once again known in Israel. See, in Israel and in Jerusalem, the king was in charge of the temple. This is why when Rome wanted to take control of the Jews, the first thing that they did was to walk into the temple and offer pagan, filthy sacrifice. They went to the altar and they sacrificed pigs on the altar of the temple to say, the God of Israel is not in control, we are. That's why it's not an accident that Jesus walked into the temple as soon as he got there. He looked around, he took stock of what was going on, he went back and he got a good night's rest. Jesus ate some breakfast and then Jesus got up and the Bible says Jesus went back. And when Jesus went back, he walked into the temple and he began to drive out those who had sold and those who had bought in the temple And he overturned the tables of the money changers and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Jesus walked into the temple and took control violently. He threw down the gauntlet and this is what he said with his actions. Caesar isn't king here. Herod isn't king here. I am in my house. The Pharisees are not in charge. The chief priests are not in charge. Jesus is in control, and Jesus alone makes the rules. Folks, this is what got Jesus killed. No one was going to crucify Jesus because he was healing the blind and making the lame walk. No one was going to crucify him for being a bold preacher or a faith healer, but when Jesus threatened to upset the power structure, he's just declared himself an enemy of the state. Folks, when we quote this passage related to the importance of prayer in our places of worship, we really miss something. Jesus said, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? Now certainly we want to emphasize a few things. First of all, it is a house of prayer for who? For everybody. Jesus says that there will be neither Jew nor Gentile. We're going to open the doors. And all who would follow and seek the Lord can come into this place. But look. We quote this passage and we talk about our churches, or our church to be a house of prayer, and it should be, but folks, Jesus says something that you can't miss. He doesn't quote it and say, "Didn't God say?" He said, "My house." Folks, Jesus walks in and says, "This is my house. And I am in charge. Folks, Jesus makes the rules. He's in control. He makes the rules for his followers, and he continues to make the rules today. Listen to me. You, nor I, get to put your expectations on Jesus and see him bow before them. You don't get to say, Jesus, you do this. I've tried my best to teach my kids to fish. They can't catch fish. Well, the little ones can't. It's a nightmare. If y'all have ever taken four kids fishing, it's an absolute nightmare. You know, Wyatt can fish all by himself. He's fine. But then, like, like the, the little ones, y'all, if you've taken little kids' fish, you understand. It's, it's just a nightmare. You can't do anything right. E- every time, you, you know, I don't take a rod, and then I get in trouble because, why aren't you fishing? I do take a rod, and then I get in trouble because I am fishing. I can't do anything right. And um, I, I love when, when they get frustrated. They get frustrated, and they cast, and I hear, Ugh! I did it the way you said, and it didn't work. Now, my response is, if you'd done it the way I said, it would have worked. That doesn't, like, make peace with the situation, just in case you're curious. But the biggest struggle, maybe, of trying to take kids fishing is they want, they, want, they want to change the rules of the game. You know, it's not just fishing, it's kind of anything, but they want to change the rules of the game. They want to be able to fish with a piece of bubble gum and catch an eight-pound bass, you know? Well, it should work this way. Well, the fish should be right here. and I'm like, no, That's not where the fish are. Well, that's where they should be. What do you know? I don't know anything. You're right. I'm just dumb. You know, I, I got no idea. We live in a world where we want to make up all the rules. Folks, we, we want to serve a Jesus that follows our rules. But I want you to know that when he said, I am the Lord, Here's what he said to us: You don't get to make up the rules. I read an editorial yesterday that said the future of Christianity looks like Lady Gaga and Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. Folks, can can I tell you the future of Christianity doesn't look like Lady Gaga, or Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, or Donald Trump, or Billy Graham? And that's the first time you've ever heard all four of those names in one sentence. But the future of Christianity doesn't look like them. The future of Christianity looks like Jesus. Because he is the king and he makes the rules. He makes the rules. He makes the rules. Listen to me. He has given us this word, and this word says it. He and he alone is the only way. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's only in the name of Jesus that salvation is possible. There is no other way. That is his rule. I don't like that rule. Well, that's your own business, but you don't get to change the rule because he is the king. We look with horror at some of the human rights violations that happen in countries around our world. And we wonder how it is that people could die for doing things that we don't think they should die for. But we forget, we don't make the rules in those countries, especially in those places ruled by a king. He is sovereign and he is in control. And folks, when we look at the affairs of the world, the universe, of all of human history and over every single individual human life, there is one king and one king only, and his name is Jesus. And he gets to make the rules. And when he rode into Jerusalem, he wanted to make sure there was no doubt. And when he walked into the temple, and when he threw over the money changers' tables, and when he ran everybody out, in one account he made a a whip of cords, and he ran them out of the temple. Why? Because it was his house. And they were making up their own rules. And Jesus says, there is only one king so this morning, I want you to know that Jesus gets to make the rules, and then finally this morning, Jesus demands praise. Now in Luke's account of the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, I already mentioned that the Pharisees told the crowd, or looked into the crowd and, and said to Jesus, that you need to tell them to hush! Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? I told you Jesus makes the rules because Jesus isn't correcting anybody. But listen to these words from Jesus. He says, if these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. How worthy of our praise is he? If we keep our mouths shut, nature will continue to sing his glory. Listen to this passage from the book of Job, chapter 38. (coughs) Just listen. Listen. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurement? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Since the very beginning of creation, nature has been exclaiming the glory of God. And before The children of God were created before Adam and Eve were even there. The Bible says that the stars were singing His glory. And folks, if we shut our mouths, make no mistake about it, nature will rise up and they will sing praise and glory and honor to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Jesus demands praise. But it's not only from creation. Consider His words in the temple. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Jesus claims the temple as his own. Folks, he is, listen, he's not just a king. He is the king. The only wise king. He is the one Isaiah prophesied about. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. If we believe his word and I do, he even controls the hearts of kings. He promotes them and deposes them. He is in control. And He is the one to whom all praise and honor are due. And He demands it. Why could Jesus demand it? Because it is rightfully His. Listen, folks, as we gather for Palm Sunday, (coughs) I don't want you to be ignorant of the reality Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem deluded or on a whim. He set his face toward Jerusalem and he rode as a king on purpose. As we look toward Good Friday and Easter, I want you to know that the suffering servant on the cross and the resurrected Savior is none other than the king of the universe and he demands your praise and your glory. All the world has been enamored with a picture of a black hole that was captured in the past few weeks. Now, a black hole is a unique thing that had never been seen before. Theoretically, it existed as, as a result of Einstein's theories. There was question as to whether or not it could even be seen. Now, a black hole is something I don't fully understand. I doubt anybody does. Nobody really knows exactly what's going on. But Einstein's theory is that if too many if too many things get together, too many planets or stars or whatever get together, then the gravitational pull becomes so strong that it begins to draw them to the, together. And that gravitational pull eventually becomes so strong that it, becomes, it just forms this massive vacuum that sort of blends everything away into eternity. Now, the discovery, the, 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 the vision of a black hole was incredible for those that are interested in quantum physics, which, don't ask me, okay, I get way overwhelmed But a black hole in quantum physics sort of work against the theory that we know as gravity. It's difficult for science to reconcile the existence of gravity and the existence of quantum mechanics and quantum physics. Okay? So gravity says what gravity says, that you drop something, it falls. You stand up and you don't float off the earth. We we pretty well believe in gravity. We kind of experienced it before. And yet the mathematical equations that... Quantum, sci- quantum physicists have, have, and, 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 and theoretical physicists have put together suggest the quantum mechanics is real. And yet the two seem to be in conflict. And yet though they seem to be in conflict, they still seem to both exist all at the same time in ways that nobody's been able to reconcile. And scientists hold these two realities as true, even though they can't fully explain them yet. Folks, can I tell you that when we look at the king of kings, who is in charge of all things, when we recognize that he alone is worthy of all praise and honor, and yet we also understand that we live in a world that is imperfect, where people don't praise him and honor and sometimes it's hard for us to wrap our brain around it. But we understand, we must believe that the two exist in conflict with one another, but they need not be in conflict. Because why? Because He has called and invited you to worship Him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Folks, He gets to set the rules. And as we look toward Easter, I want you to know that He desires to be your king and your Lord. Yes, He gets to set the rules because He is the creator king. Yes, you must come to Him helpless and humble because He is in control. But folks, He will have you. He will receive you. Will you come and surrender under the mighty hand of God that you may be saved? Will you come and surrender all of your rights, all of your privileges? Would you be willing to come and say, Lord Jesus, I don't know a lot, but I know this. You are my king. Would you be willing to come and say, Lord Jesus, I walk away from my own rules, and Lord, I submit and surrender to your rules. Would you come and cast your coats before the king as he walks into your life? Would you allow him to take up shop in the temple of your heart to drive out all of the idolatry, to drive out all of the sin? To drive out all of you and to fill it up with all of him. Would you repent of your sin and allow Jesus to grant you forgiveness? Would you come today and experience eternal life on this Palm Sunday? I'm going to pray and our musicians are going to come and lead us and as they do. The invitation is very simple on this Palm Sunday. Would you allow Jesus, who rode into Jerusalem that Sunday so many years ago, would you allow that same Jesus to come and take up residence in your life, to change you from the inside out? Would you come and say, I don't really know what to expect, but Lord Jesus, I give you full and total control. Would you allow Jesus to save you today? See, we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We're all like those chief priests who thought that we could tell Jesus exactly how it is that we should live, and exactly how it is that He should act, and yet He says, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Would you come today? Would you come and be wrong so that He may be right? Would you come and be small so that He may be great? Would you come and be sinful so that He may be Savior? Would you come? Let us pray. Father God in heaven, I pray that you'd work in this place today. I pray your Holy Spirit would go, even in the midst of these words and the song that we'll sing, Lord God, I pray you'd take the feeble words of this pastor. and Lord God, that you'd transform them in the ears and the hearts and the minds and the lives of these hearers. And Father God, you'd move past our ears to our hearts. That you would draw us in. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand this morning and as we sing, would you come? Allow the Lord to do a work in your life.
0: Amazing grace, how sweet the sound.